Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. We are both dragging ass into even our introduction today, aren't we? So much. So I just got back from Finland last night at 9 p.m. local time, which would be what? 4 a.m. Finnish time. So I don't know when I am, and I have a just pounding headache that is slowly working from the head down to my neck. (laughs) So I am here with caffeine. (laughs) Right on. Well, I had that headache Saturday morning and and been in a slow, uh, just shifted into sloth mode for the last several days, fighting something. I'm in the office fighting it today. Sloth mode. Sloth mode. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, it's a good term. It's a good term. So today's interview is going to be fantastic, given both of our current states. Well, you know, I mean, we, we rise to the occasion. I don't know if anyone, if we did just write out, tell everyone, we, we usually manage to pull it off. But, you know, fuck it. Let's just tell them right off the bat. We don't we feel great. Honest. We all and, have bad days. It's yeah, weird. yeah. And, and it's Monday. So, well... Is it uh, Monday? I don't know what day it is. I know, right? What day is it in Finland? It's probably... Uh, it's still Monday. Yeah. It's still Monday well, for five well, more hours. <laughs> today, we are talking to Associate Professor of Biological Anthropology at Binghamton University in upstate New York, Kathy Wander. She's actually a biological anthropologist and an epidemiologist who works in the... Well, in, in basically Darwinian medicine, the intersection of human evolutionary biology and health and her research, uh, we just interviewed uh, Rachel Anyim a couple weeks ago, one of her students, about uh, their work, actually. Um, I should say I, I did. Uh, so Kara did a solo interview with Amanda Vale. I did a solo interview with, with Rachel. And today we are reconvening and we are going to be uh, talking to Kathy Wander. And, and the work we're talking to her about today is similar to what we talked to Rachel about, which is this innovation that their lab has done in the methodology to look at immune response in milk. So there are two papers that I pulled for today. Mm -hmm. One comes from Evolution Medicine and Public Health called Trade-Offs in Milk Community Affect Infant Infectious Disease Risk. And I pulled this one because I think there's like, I don't know, she's she's like you, she's got like 17 new papers this year. She's just rocking shit left and right. And I I pulled this one because she's first author on it, but she also uh, has a brand new paper in American Journal of Human Biology. And Kara, um, I'm going to be really uh, pushing our AJHB articles from now on because I'm, I'm starting a study where we're, we're looking at the impact oh. of actually highlighting articles in the journal and seeing uh, what they do. So far, we can tell that we have an effect, but is it statistically significant? And is it us that's having an effect? Well, I mean, we're, we're comparing the it articles. It could also of, be the Twitter account, and you have to take into all that into account as well. I'll unpack that at a future date. <laughs> Nonetheless. We should do an interview. We can interview you about it. <laughs> we, we, could, we could do that down the road. Um, but the AJHP piece is called Human Milk Lactoferrin Variation in Relation to Maternal Inflammation and Iron Deficiency in Northern Kenya. And she is the second author on that. Shall we bring her in? Let's do it. Let's do it. Hello, logistics. Hi, Hi, how are you? Both of us are actually pretty awful today. So, uh, oh I just no, got, I just got back from Finland at nine o'clock last night. So I'm all out of sorts and uh-huh. this is under the weather. So it's going to. Oh, be I'm sorry. Not your fault, but it's going to be a fantastic interview today. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, you, you probably won't notice. 
<laughs> you might not know the difference. Like, yeah, no, you all, you all kind of seem like you're having bad days every day. No, we just seem cavalier, verging on the edge of reckless abandon with fun and glee. Today's just a little bit of a headache with the fun and glee. I think you, you both always seem style. so chipper. We try Fun. so hard. That's what I'm saying, Kara. We can fake. We we can fake it like the best of them. Fake it until we make it. That's how it is. My my Finnish colleagues are actually the same as. Yeah, I basically did not sleep while I was in Finland because my body does not adjust well to jet lag. Mm-hmm. And my colleagues are like, "Are you sure you didn't sleep? You seem so energetic and chipper." And I'm like, "No, it is all fake, and I am putting it on. Inside, I am dying. Don't worry." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, hi, Kathy, and welcome to the Sausage of Science. Thank you for taking the time today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so we like to start each show kind of the same way, and that's to get a little, get to know a little bit more about you and how you got into anthropology and why you decided to pursue it as a career. So take us on that journey. Sure. So I think I'm like most anthropologists when I started out my career in higher education, I guess I had no idea anthropology was a thing. I went into undergrad with no idea what I wanted to do. And I think at least the self-awareness to know I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really liked biology. I really liked social science. I wasn't ready to rule out the humanities. I also kind of thought maybe I would want to do a more practical kind of course of training. And it could have been medicine. It could have been social work. I was interested in all of the things. And so I, with that, what I was very proud of at the time level of self-awareness, I I figured I would at least pick a university that could support whatever I um, wound up wanting to do. Um, And so I went to Ohio State, which is a very large university that seemed to have all of the, all of the kind of all of the majors and programs in in kind of everything. And there were also practical. Gary, you can't take a Michigan shot right now. You cannot. I I, I, I see you. I hear you. Head injury festivals don't interest me. So you can be the. It's just one of those. It's an automatic response I can no longer control or have never been able to control. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. There are wonderful people in the Ohio State Department of Anthropology. I actually really like them. So I should behave myself. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I went to Ohio State. Um, It was also, you know, I'm from Ohio. So it was it was cheaper than going anywhere else. I was actually, I was admitted to the University of Michigan and chose not to go there, mostly for financial reasons. I think if you, if you saw the side by sides, you would, you would agree that that was one smart choice I made. And I do kind of want to say, if you have undergrads who listen to this podcast, that I'm not advocating anyone try and follow my, my trajectory because I made some poor choices and just got lucky. But yeah, I went to Ohio State because I figured when I finally figured out what I wanted to do, they would have it. And so Ohio State has this kind of, they wouldn't call it this, but like a holding pen, pen kind of arrangement. So you come in as an undergrad, as an admitted freshman, and you go in this undeclared pool and you register for your classes from there. And at some point you declare a major and, or you're admitted to a program and you move into the College of Arts and Sciences or wherever you wherever you go. 
And I was just taking classes and all the stuff in biology and, and whatever else was required just in case I wanted to do the pre-med thing. Um, but also in all of the other things that I was interested in. And at some point I, you know, we registered on the phone way back then and I called in and tried to get my spot and was informed that I was a junior now and I had to move out of this freshman kind of holding pen and I could, I had to declare a major. I, it was time. And so I declared anthropology because I had really been enjoying biological anthropology coursework. I had really been enjoying biology coursework. There was a lot of connection between those two par- departments when I was at Ohio State. And so I kind of figured anthropology would be, you know, a nice place to be. And then if I wound up wanting to double major to move to another department, at least I would be in arts and sciences. And so then I just kind of kept taking the classes I wanted to take without any attention to uh, major requirements or graduation requirements. Um, At some point, my scholarships ran out and I had to start paying in-state tuition and I wasn't a huge fan of that. And they said to me, you have a lot of credits. I think it's time to fly the nest. Off you go. I was enthusiastic about that. I had decided probably before I picked a major, I had decided that I wanted a PhD and, you know, whatever the thing that I fell in love with was, I wanted a PhD in it. I didn't know what it was, but I liked research and figuring stuff out. And I had never lived outside of the state of Ohio. And in my mind, anthropology happened not inside the state of Ohio. Um, so I, I volunteered on To do the Peace Corps, you had to agree to live wherever they sent you, and you had to commit to two years, and both of those were not perfect, and so I completely rejected that option and instead spent a bunch of money on my credit card to do a different program that I felt was marginally better at 23. Again, I'm not advocating for this trajectory, Um, but I lived in Tanzania, which was exactly kind of where I thought anthropology happened. Um, for a year um, to kind of see if I was an international living person and if I could kind of do some of that cross-cultural communication and developing the language skills and and, um, working internationally that I thought was critical for being a biological anthropologist. And I loved it. It was awesome. It was expensive. You just went on your own? Um, no, was it so a there were. The, it was a program. The program was called Visions in Action. Um, there were three of us, and we lived in Moshi, which is um, in the Kilimanjaro region of Tanzania. And we kind of so we shared a house, but we each had different jobs. And so my job was in where I still work today in um, rural Machame in Kilimanjaro. So I made some connections there that you know have have served my research ever since, dropped everything I could, took the GRE, applied to exactly one grad program, another poor choice. Um, but I happened to get in. I happened to get funding. I worked with Bettina Shell Duncan at UW, which was the perfect fit for me in so many ways. Um, then after that, I just got lucky a series of times. And now here I am. It doesn't sound so much like poor choices as as just like life. I mean, I understand what you're saying because I, it, upon reflection and telling my kids my path, 
Like, I don't tell them, I don't recommend certain paths, but, you know, certainly they got us to where we are and they made us who we are and, and we have made lemonade out of maybe some lemons. Would that be better? Or that is wanna... very generous of you. Um, <laughs> well, when I have... talk to, when I talk to people who want to go to grad school and do my job and I can see, you know, a kindred spirit, I can see that love of making new knowledge um, in anthropology and the willingness to go into debt and earn no money for years on end to be able to do that. I did it and it worked out for me. It worked out for many people, but it's hard to, it's hard to recommend people make that choice. I, oh, I like yeah. to tell people to really think it through. Cause I didn't, I just got really lucky that that didn't have negative think, consequences for me. I, th I think um, that's a fair warning. I, th I think that we still stumble in, headlong into our, our our passions and loves and and cross our fingers and, and toes and Kara and I certainly can can relate to that. Now fast forward, you're mm -hmm. you're a milk researcher. Yeah. 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 That was, so uh, that, that was another happy coincidence. Tell us about it. Um so I'm interested in I'm interested in everything now, but for a long time I was primarily interested in the immune system. And in particular, in kind of the the early life, and and I don't mean in utero because most of immune system development happens in the first years of life. Early period of immune system development, where the immune system sets itself up and faces some pretty massive trade-offs. Right, the immune responses are hugely energetically expensive, and both failing to respond to an infectious agent and responding to the wrong thing can be catastrophic um, for an organism. So having an immune system it, itself is, it's just fraught with costs, but you, you certainly can't live without it. So I'm interested in the immune system and in particular humans, uh, that that question of, of how to balance the costs and benefits of immunity and how to set that up in early life has been a um, persistent interest. And so at some point I was kind of, you know, characterizing, looking for better ways to characterize immunity, immune activity, um, immune responses in children. The measure of immune activity that I kind of like best is a challenge test, right? Presenting the immune system with something and measuring how much it responds because that's got a system level interpretation and I don't have to get into the as much of the nitty-gritty of which cytokines trigger which um, activities and which immune cells and and kind of multitude of different pathways that kind of can have at the system level this same or a similar outcome and the one that I had used in the past is a is a challenge test that involves injecting some some challenge into a child and that's not that's it's a skin test but it's not perfect for a lot of reasons. And I wanted something that was more minimally invasive. And so we were looking at an in vitro um, whole blood stimulation. At the same time that I was going to Tanzania to kind of do some pilot work with this, a colleague of mine at Michigan State, whom you probably um, know, Moscow Fujita, who I've, you know, kind of collaborated with on and off since we were both at University of Washington in grad school. And so she came with me and we did some, I did some piloting of this whole blood stimulation in vitro measure of immune activity. And, and we were talking to some potential 
participants about breastfeeding practices in Kilimanjaro. And we were talking to my colleagues at KCRI, our colleagues now at KCRI about milk and immunity and, and all of these things. And at some point we were sitting around, you know, three or four of us kind of went, they wonder what would happen if you did this in vitro stimulation with milk. And then five years later, I'm still working on, on that question. And I will at some point get back to the, the question of measuring immune responses in, in children, measuring, kind of trying to characterize how these costs and benefits um, of immune activity plays out in milk has been super cool because it has a lab component and a field component and has some, you know, it's, it's fun. Um, I like a, I like a challenge in the lab and, and I love to do field work with infants, like what's going to be more fun than that. But it's also a, like the immune system of milk is maternal investment opportunity to shape so much for an infant um, to try to combat infectious disease risk in that period of, of high vulnerability to infectious disease when an infant immune defense is still remarkably incompetent and immature and an opportunity to shape immune system development in that infant that could you know, help that infant to manage these really stark trade-offs across the life course. So it seems like a really good place kind of to test a lot of these um, hypothesized trade-offs and to try and understand this probably multifactorial optimization problem of immune reactivity on multiple dimensions. Very, very so yeah, I got a little sidetracked. That's okay. That's okay. With we'll, the milk. we'll bring it back. That's okay because we're going to go back to milk right now. So okay. um, you and your colleagues have a new paper out in the American Journal of Human Biology, mm -hmm. which this podcast is associated with, and it's mm -hmm. called Human Human Milk Lactoferrin Variation in Relation to Maternal Inflammation and Iron Deficiency in Northern Kenya. Mm -hmm. So could you first just get some basics down of what is lactoferrin and why we should care about it? Folks. Yeah, so lactoferrin um, is a transferrin-like protein. Um, so transferrin is, is one of the proteins that you use to manage iron. Iron is tremendously important. Um, we use it to generate ATP in our cells. We use it to move oxygen to our cells. We couldn't live without it. But it's also hazardous. So you don't want it catalyzing unintended reactions, and you don't want it to be available to your infectious agents. Um, because they will use it. Um, we are their source of iron. And so transferrin, ferritin, and lactoferrin are all proteins of different sizes that bind to iron to try and keep it away from infectious agents, try and keep it away from our tissues. So it's, it's available for our use, but not kind of bouncing around, catalyzing reactions all over the place. Lactoferrin is similar to transferrin, but transferrin kind of just shuttles iron around. Lactoferrin really kind of keeps it contained. And it also has some antimicrobial properties. So in addition to keeping iron away from microbes, it also has other potential um, antimicrobial factors depending on what it encounters. Um, so it binds iron and seems to be an important part of immune defense that milk provides to infants, largely by binding iron, but also potentially in other ways as well. That's what lactoferrin is. Lactoferrin's in milk in order to defend infants against infectious disease, um, and maybe to transfer some iron 
to them, um, although it really seems to mostly be about immune defense. Um, so one of our questions in that paper, um, and this is with Masako Fujita again, and with some of the other papers coming out of this same data that are, um, one is published in EMPH, um, one or two are in um, AJBA. One of our big questions is um, when mothers are nutritionally stressed and stressed by infectious disease, does that impact milk? Because these participants, this is data that was collected in 2006 in northern Kenya, um, very different to northern Tanzania. That's a very arid environment, not a particularly lush environment, lots of um, nutritional stress. And then in kind of as a background characteristic of Marsabit district and, and northern Kenya, and then in 2006, when these data were collected, there was a, a drought happening. So extra nutritional strain on top of the, the kind of nutritional strain that characterized that environment anyway. And then, you know, these are participants who were during much of that drought, either pregnant and then lactating or lactating. So lots and lots of demands on their physiology and not a lot of nutrition coming in. And so if you're going to see milk kind of quality, so nutrient delivery to the infant um, or child or delivery of immune defense to the infant or child, that's one place where you really might see it. And so all of these publications, kind of the first thing we query of the data is, you know, is this aspect of milk, milk protein, um, milk vitamin A, milk lactoferrin, milk SIGA, um, which is the antibody, the primary antibody in milk, is that compromised by iron deficiency, anemia, vitamin A deficiency, maternal underweight? And pretty consistently, it's not. So there's, there are lots of complicated things happening um, with milk. There are patterns in things like lactoferrin and milk. But the primary finding is that milk content really seems to be buffered against maternal nutritional stress. So at least for the most vulnerable infants. So to interject a little bit, and, and because I know we're talking across, we pulled two papers, but yeah, mm-hmm. you have like seven, seven papers out this year or, or several. So we're talking about, I'm just guessing, you had a bunch of papers out, maybe five, something like that. And you're, you're a bunch, yeah, a bunch. Yeah. So you're looking at the granularity at several field sites of how the trade-offs of immune response and ecological stress are, are are trading off in milk. And so I wonder if you could characterize something, you know, about all of these sites or all of these studies that, to suggest the dynamics of milk. Is there is there a takeaway or is it so specific to each field site that we really have to, we do have to go diving in on these uh, studies at a much more fine-grained level to understand how immune response is active, is functioning. So I think one thing we can say is there's not a simple, if a breastfeeding person is malnourished, uh, undergoing an infectious disease, is, is sick in some way, that directly translates to milk content. We very consistently have not seen that um, in Tanzania or in Northern Kenya. I don't, or in North America, I have, I have some, some moms from around here in New York have given us milk as well. And we haven't seen, we haven't seen that to the extent you can, you can say there's much malnutrition in, in those participants. We haven't seen that simple, that simple dynamic. Um, beyond that, 
give me five years and 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 hopefully i'll I'll have a big picture message that's more than just it's complicated but it's there are lots of there are lots of intriguing patterns yep but it seems so it seems like yes simply put yes milk content and milk immune activity seem to be buffered against maternal stressors sometimes that's that's affected by maternal characteristics and sometimes those maternal characteristics interact with infant characteristics so we might see buffering particularly for young infants whose immune system is is the least competent on its own so there there are some there's a pattern to the buffering it seems i'm not ready to say that those findings generalize to all of lactation everywhere but yes there there <laughs> there, there does seem to be some buffering there will eventually be broader insights. Um, I have to get my head out of the nitty gritty. The forest and the um, trees, always. Right. And I've been looking at a lot of individual tree leaves and they're awesome, but I, I do, I, I need to catch my breath and zoom back out. That's hard. <laughs> so, it's hard to do. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the next big question is, you know, what is next? And, and you, you say, come back in five years, but mm-hmm. kind of what are your plans now moving forward with this project? So we have found some some stuff that I kind of expected. We can measure some components, not all components of immune activity in milk in vitro. So we can capture inflammation. Um, We can't really capture anti-inflammatory activity the way that I thought we might, Um, but we can see lower levels of activity. Um, And so we see that you know, kind of higher levels of milk immune activity when we incubate the milk with an infectious agent that's associated with lower risk of infectious disease for the infant. Lower levels of milk pro-inflammatory activity when we incubate the milk with with something benign, that lower activity is associated with lower risk for infectious diseases. Um, So high appropriate activity, low inappropriate activity are both protective for infants. Um, so we do kind of see, in a sense, those two dimensions of pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory components of immunocompetence are important for infants. And we see a trade-off between them, kind of. Um, we, we see that the, the, pro-inflammatory, inflama- the pro-inflammatory responses to an infectious agent kind of pull those pro-inflammatory responses to benign agents up with them a bit. I think it's probably another component of immune system investment to then control those inappropriate responses. Um, So we've got multiple dimensions of um, immune value in milk and and immunological training potentially of the infant immune system. And we think that that added infectious disease risk associated with those what we're calling kind of misdirected or inappropriate immune responses may have to do with disruption of the microbiome in the in the mm. infant, right? One of the one of the many benefits a microbiome might provide is just kind of taking up space yeah. and and competing with by flourishing these benign microbes take up space. Mm. And so there's less room for infectious agents to, to, to proliferate in the gut. And so there's a, one part of me really wants to, to go in the direction of characterizing infant immune responses and looking at how milk immune activity connects to 
infant immune activity over time. Um, and then the other direction that I would like to go is, is looking at the microbiome of the infant and how that develops over time. And then at some point, we are going to need to measure these things in a, in a couple of different infectious disease environments. The only place we've really collected data about infectious disease risk in infants so far is, is Kilimanjaro. Um, hmm. So that's three huge projects <laughs> to come, probably only tackle one of them um, at a time, but um, those are kind of the, the next questions so far. Well, I, I know we just talked to uh, Rachel Anyim and 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 mm-hmm. a little bit about her success, and mm-hmm. and you you just answered our question about what is coming next, probably for the next twenty years for you. If we're all if we're being realistic, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, so realistic uh, is clearly not my yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's not really how we operate, is it? And and also this next question is almost a, a, a red herring for most of us who, who work too much too. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not anthropologizing? What is the other side of Kathy Wander? What do I do for fun? Well, so my kids are nine and 11. So a tremendous amount of my work-life balance happens while I'm driving them to school and swimming lessons and soccer and, you know, kind of in the shouting in the in the car about, you know, how was your day? And I would love to explain to you what, what did, what did they ask me about the other day? Oh, I, we were listening to marketplace on um, NPR. And so I was shouting an explanation of the Dow Jones industrial average, to the backseat of my car on the way to soccer. Cause you know, that's what they asked about that day. I like that you're shouting. You take, you have to interject that, that parental, <laughs> let me finish my sentence. You asked yep, me, yep, yep, I need to yep. impart this message. Yeah. Or yeah. I, last night at dinner, it was, they, they made a mistake of, of commenting on, I think my son was trying to explain something he had learned in social studies about changes in human life expectancy over time. And I was like, well, let me tell you about some demography. The child, the poor child was trying to eat a spaghetti did and you, I was did, explaining you shaved mammalian uh, life, yeah. um, um, our, mortality our curves and life ex- yeah, life expectancy at, at um, birth compared to life expectancy at age five and what lifespan means to demographer. And, and he was unexcited about that by the time I was done, <laughs> but the, he still no, asks. I love it. Give it time. Um, yeah, like it, it might spark something in him at some point. Yeah, well, I, right now he's he's in love with physics, which was always my least favorite science. But my daughter is very enthusiastic about biology and the, the fuzzier side of, mm-hmm. of science, which which I like. So I'm hanging on to that. But the, the other thing that we do, um, I mean, we do lots of stuff for fun. New York is not a bad place to be. Um, if you like to be outside, the university has a nature preserve. Um, we go kayaking, hiking when we can. We still do store that they're nine and 11. Um, so this isn't their favorite, but we still do kind of bedtime stories um, with our kids at night. And I think the reason is because kids books for this age group are really good. They're really good. <laughs> and so um, my kids would probably be fine with reading these books on their own, but we're not ready to give them up yet. I think I read <laughs> up until high school and it was kind of because they were asking so many questions and arguing mm-hmm. uh, while I was trying to do it that I finally stomped out and refused to do it anymore, but I definitely missed it. 
and it definitely I, extended well past I, when they could read on their own. I still oh, I love young it. Adult yeah, stuff, like Akata, the Akata Witch series. That's mm. technically young adult, I, but I love those. I read the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy to the kids, and and we we read the the Lord of the Rings. Anybody, Harry Potter, probably the- most people who have kids in this age group already know the Wings of Fire series, but if you don't have kids, you might have missed those. They're about dragons. Humans are entirely bit parts in these books, but they're awesome in so many having ways. Dragon really PTSD good stories. From the show last night, sorry. No spoilers, no spoilers. Um, oh yeah, I don't I don't watch those dragons. You can spoil it for me all you like. I don't know um, if I'm gonna even watch it yet. I was so upset with the way the main series uh devolved over time anyway 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 karen and i like to talk tv so uh, apologies TV for books, going off the rails here at the end. <laughs> well they were gonna the the wings of fire was going to be a tv it was going to be a netflix series and and i think almost the day we told the kids that their favorite books that are also um graphic novels were going to be a tv series netflix canceled that plan huh. Um, so they're not going to be a TV series, but we're, we can't wait to see what that author is going to do next. And then the other ones are the um, Rick Reardon Presents imprint gives the, the Percy Jackson and the Olympians mm-hmm. treatment to a, a cross-cultural set of myths and legends. And, and those are so much fun, um, so much better than the whatever I find to read. Um, <laughs> my kids' books are way better. Well, Kathy, I've got to say this has been a great, great time chatting with you about your work and awesome young adult fiction because everyone should read young adult fiction. That's the uh, best. It is. Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the show today. And we look forward to talking to you again in 5, 10, 15, 20 years <laughs> when we have a better picture of what's going on with Milk and Immunity. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks, Kathy.